Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 15, An Emperor Beyond the Walls. had been restored after Simeon's bold strike against the Byzantines in 904. Bulgaria was looking ascendant under its young, intelligent, and daring leader. The Serbs were subservient allies. The Magyars had been pushed into the European heartland and the Byzantines. Well, the Byzantines looked helpless between Simeon and the might of the armies of Islam. Three years into this peace, on May 2nd, 907, the first Tsar of the Bulgarians, Boris I, finally died in his monastery. He was an old man, and his wisdom would be missed. Runciman described the man's death, quote, Outside Bulgaria, no one noticed it. He had retired so long ago, and Germany, where men had told of him with awe, was far too far away now that the Magyars roamed between. And in Constantinople, the busy Greeks thought of other things. Yet it was the end of one of the greatest lives in history. Clement survived his great patron for nine years, dying in harness in 916. Naum, who left Preslav to retire to a monastery that he founded in Ohrid, had died in 906. End quote. Simeon may have been ruling for well over a decade, but these deaths clearly marked the end of an era. But it was an era Simeon was intent on preserving and building upon. The question was, would he succeed? Now that depended largely, as it always had, on the Byzantines. So while peace was at hand, apart from a Magyar raid which cut across the country to Dyrrhachia, modern Duras in uh, Albania, Simeon watched with interest as the situation and the court of Constantinople deteriorated. Now, Emperor Leo VI was having, how shall we put it, marriage problems. Too many marriages, the wrong marriages, unproductive marriages. His first was a forced marriage to a woman he detested, and it produced no heirs. She died in 897. Ah, but Leo married again, but there were no heirs and she died in 899. Now, it was at this time illegal to marry a third time in the Byzantine Empire, but he married again. There were no heirs. She died in 901. Leo then scandalized his people by marrying an unprecedented fourth time, and a son was born in the year 905. But Leo died seven years later in 912, leaving his sort of quasi-legitimate son, Constantine VII, on the throne, guarded by the boy's lecherous drunkard of an uncle, Alexander. Hardly a stable situation. Simeon saw his moment. A sickly and quasi-legitimate child sat on the throne, guarded by a man who had little interest in ensuring the small emperor saw adulthood. After just over a year, Alexander II died. But before he did, 
he foolishly gave Simeon his excuse to strike. Alexander had not only refused to honor the treaty of 897 and give Simeon his annual tribute, but he had managed to insult the Bulgarian envoys who came to receive the tribute. So, it was the spring of 913, and Simeon's army was poised to strike. War had been declared. And just as they were preparing, Alexander's death, a revolt in Sicily, pretenders to the throne, and a planned Arab invasion of Anatolia were all coming together to throw Byzantium into chaos. The head of the regency for young Constantine, Patriarch Nicholas Maistikos, sent letters begging Simeon for mercy. But soon enough, a massive Bulgarian army stood in the midsummer heat underneath the mighty walls of the city. Simeon had marched with the ambition of making himself the sole emperor, overthrowing Byzantium once and for all. But, as always seemed to be the case, when Simeon was reminded of the impenetrability of the walls of Constantinople, walls which would not be breached for hundreds of years still, he moderated his aims, and he entered negotiations. A new treaty was negotiated while Simeon and his children were entertained in the emperor's palace. The Byzantines agreed to pay back all the tribute they owed Simeon, to allow one of Simeon's daughters to marry the boy emperor Constantine VII, and finally, to recognize Simeon as an emperor in his own right. And so, Simeon returned to Preslav triumphant. He knew that with his daughter as an empress, with a friend as regent and patriarch, uh, he had by this time sort of befriended Nicholas, and his armies at the ready, that he stood to become not just emperor of Bulgaria, but emperor of the Byzantines. The ceremony to establish his, his title as emperor was held in the Bulgarian camp outside the city. Now, there has been very considerable debate over the authenticity of the ceremony and whether or not Simeon was crowned emperor of the Bulgarians or simply as Caesar, or co-emperor in the Byzantine practice of the time. Now, historian John Fine, following a very exhaustive discussion of the issue in his book, The Early Medieval Balkans, concluded that Simeon was crowned emperor of the Bulgarians, but that Patriarch Nicholas tried to make the ceremony as unofficial as possible while still satisfying Simeon, kind of trying to walk a line there. So, Simeon was, in fact, crowned probably emperor of the Bulgarians, and he went home. But fortune did not favor Simeon in his dreams, because shortly after he returned in 914, just about a year later, the emperor Constantine VII, the young boy emperor, he's maybe eight now, his mother Zoe, who had previously been sent into exile after her husband died, she had been sent off to a nunnery, well, she returned and very quickly exerted control over affairs in the palace, essentially took power in her own right for her young child. So she removed Patriarch Nicholas, uh, who was the kind of head regent at the time, in a plot and managed to assume control herself. Then, one of her very first actions was to cancel the planned marriage between Simeon's daughter and Constantine VII. This meant war. 
Just a year after he had marched less, Simeon again descended into Thrace, quickly capturing the vital city of Adrianople. While he was convinced with gifts and cash to give the city back, the war which had begun was going to last more than a decade, and Simeon would not relent for anything. But for this moment, Simeon was content to wait. Now, we know very little about his actions over the next two years, but it seems he raided Byzantine territory in the west to Dyrrhachium, again, that's Dures in Albania, on the Adriatic Sea, and all the way south to Salonika, Thessaloniki, on the Gulf of, and even to the Gulf of Corinth, so really most of the way down to Greece, just before the Peloponnesus. Now, he had been paid well enough to give Adrianople back, but he was not going to let off the pressure on the Byzantines, until the city of Constantinople was his, or at the very least, until the marriage was back on. So in the meantime, the Byzantines were carefully working their greatest chance at a victory in this new war. Diplomacy. It was always their specialty, and the Byzantines knew that if they could just surround Bulgaria, if they could get Bulgaria's neighbors to attack them from several fronts, that they were sure to have a victory. So once again, they sought an alliance with all of those people, all of Bulgaria's immediate neighbors. The Magyars, well, they seemed quite uninterested. The Pechenegs and the Serbs were both sort of Bulgarian vassals or allies, if you'll remember, but they both supported the Byzantines. They both said, yeah, we've got you guys on this. Because, but the Byzantines, they actually weren't the only ones working hard at diplomacy. Uh, Simeon was also talking to all these people and trying to make sure they would not turn against the Bulgarians. But the problem was that the Bulgar or the Byzantines rather had much deeper pockets than than uh, Simeon did. So in the end, Simeon was outbid in terms of winning, especially Pechenegh support. So Bulgaria enters the year 917 in a very precarious position. They're surrounded by enemies. The Byzantines, the Pechenegs, the Serbs, they're all at some stage of preparation for an attack. Only the Magyars, the Magyars are sort of the only Bulgarian neighbor which is not getting ready to attack Bulgaria at this moment. But still, some Bulgarian diplomacy had in fact succeeded. Simeon was warned of the betrayal of the Serbian knyaz, remember this means sort of prince, Peter, by the Bulgarian ally Michael, who was a ruler of a small territory kind of around modern Montenegro. So, now it's the summer of 917, and the Byzantines and the Pechenegs are on the attack. A Byzantine army led by Phocas the Elder is marching up the coast, just as the Byzantines have done so many times before. And just like before, they're shadowed by a navy. And this time the navy is led by a man named Romanos Lekopenos, who's a man is a name you should remember. He's going to be important very soon. So, as this is happening, the Pechenegs are marching from the north. The Byzantine army and navy are supposed to meet at Mesembria, modern-day Mesebr, where the navy is going to reinforce the army with additional troops, as the Pechenegs are coming in from the south. But there's always a but. Luckily for Simeon, Lekapenos Romanos refused to transport the Pechenegs across the Danube for reasons passing anyone's understanding. Really, we have no idea why he wouldn't do this. So, the Pechenegs, they'd already raided modern Wallachia, the sort of plains between the Danube and the Carpathian Mountains, 
and they'd already been paid by the Byzantines, so they just went home. Why bother? Why fight a full Bulgarian army? They got money, they'd raided, everything was great, so they just left. Now, this is somewhat important. It's not given a lot of kind of credence in history books, but this is sort of the end of the period of Bulgarian control of sort of modern Romania, this large territory north of the Danube. Now, you'll remember Bulgaria's control over this territory was always a little iffy. Bulgaria never sort of exerted really, really strong direct control there. But these sort of uh, Pechenig raids in this period, this general period, are seen by most historians as the period when Bulgarian control of this territory more or less is coming to an end. But there isn't a sort of hard and fast date when this happens, but uh, think about it around this time the Bulgarians stop exerting a lot of control north of the river. But Simeon didn't seem too concerned. After all, the Danube was an excellent frontier. It had made a great frontier for the Roman Empire, for the Byzantine Empire. It would make a great frontier for the Bulgarians. So, at the same time, uh, the Serbs were also kind of preparing for an attack, but they were far from ready. Uh, they weren't uh, sort of able to jump right into it, just like the Pechenegs and the Byzantines were. We don't really know why they weren't so ready. But the Serbs would like to have attacked at this moment, but essentially the Serbs are out, the Pechenegs are out. So there's a great irony. The Byzantines had this great diplomatic success. They got all Bulgarians' neighbors to be ready to attack, except for the Magyars. But in the end, the Byzantines are completely alone. That's how it goes. So, let's, uh, so as they're marching up the coast, the Byzantines stop to rest by the town of Anchialus, near the modern uh, small town of Pumorie. Now we can take a moment here and appreciate the irony of this location. Because you'll no doubt recognize the place I'm describing, Anchialus. Because this is, in fact, the third battle of Anchialus. The third battle in the exact same location between the Bulgarians and the Byzantines. The Bulgarians won the first battle there in 708, and the Byzantines had won the second one in 763. But this time was very different from either of those battles. The previous battles had involved soldiers in the thousands, but this time they would be counted in the tens of thousands because this, by many accounts, was to be the largest battle of the entire Middle Ages. So as the Byzantine marched north with between 30,000 and 62,000 men, they were confident. The soldiers had all been paid in advance, not such a common thing in military history, and they felt a great victory was in their grasp. Waiting for them was Simeon at the head of what could be called the greatest army Bulgaria had yet put into the field. They were standing in the foothills of the Balkan Mountains, overlooking the spot just as Khan Tervel had done 209 years earlier. Now, the Bulgarians, by most accounts, had far fewer soldiers because... So, they just mentioned that the Byzantine attempts to get all Bulgaria's neighbors to invade didn't quite work out. But Simeon, how was he supposed to know that? So, Bulgaria had to deploy small armies in all directions to protect against possible attacks by the Serbs, the Magyars, and the Pechenegs. So, Simeon had a pretty, you know, reasonably sized army, but... It definitely wasn't sort of the full might of what Bulgaria would have otherwise been able to put together, just because they had huge frontiers to defend, and Simeon, by all accounts, could not have afforded to throw all of his soldiers into this one force. So we don't know exactly how big this Bulgarian army was, but a couple tens of thousands compared to 
even more tens of thousands by the Byzantines. Now, it's not exactly clear whether the Byzantines at this moment knew that the Pechenegs had completely abandoned them. Again, we just know that the navy refused to ferry them across the Danube, but how much more did they know? Now, I think they probably weren't fully informed because they were still heading north. They were on their way to Dobruja, this, this area on the bend of the Danube along the Black Sea. Uh, they were heading that way, which is where they were supposed to meet up with the Pechenegs. If they had known uh, what was happening, they probably would have made more of a beeline for Pliska. So my assumption is they actually didn't know how bad their situation was. And they didn't know, well, they had some idea the Bulgarians were there, but probably didn't expect a full attack because they would have thought the Bulgarians would have to be somewhere north defending against the Pechenegs as well. But either way, the Byzantines by this point were carefully avoiding crossing any large mountain ranges. They were still playing it safe, moving up the coast as they had done before. After all, as you'll remember, Khan Krum had taught them the lesson very well to never, ever, ever get caught in a mountain pass by the Bulgarians. Now, the Bulgarians had the high ground in this moment. Uh, as the battle is sort of preparing, the armies have seen each other, things are getting underway. But Simeon couldn't simply repeat Tervel's unstoppable sweep down the mountains, because you'll remember that this Bulgarian army is very different than his. This army is a unified one, without that heavy proto-Bulgarian cavalry element which used to define Tervel's force. So, you know, there's still cavalry, but uh, you know, the proto-Bulgarians were really excellent horse warriors, but by now the proto-Bulgarians and the Slavs have sort of mixed more, and you don't have the same sort of uh, semi-nomadic horse warriors that you did a couple hundred years earlier. Plus, those kinds of enormous sweeps down the mountain, they're not really possible with tens of thousands of troops. You know, once you get to a certain number of soldiers, you can't really have these big sweeping uh, attacks in the same way that you could with a smaller force. So instead, instead, Simeon sought to sort of replicate a famous strategy, Hannibal's strategy at the Battle of Lake Trasimene. Now this was one of the greatest military defeats in history, and certainly one of the greatest military defeats for the Roman Empire. Now, whether Simeon consciously mimicked Hannibal's legendary strategy is unknown, but he certainly used it just as skillfully. I mean, I'm making this analogy because I'm familiar with the battle. I saw what Simeon did and saw that it was essentially the same basic tactics and same basic strategy. Now, what, what I mean here, what's meant is that uh, Simeon consciously strengthened the troops at the flanks and weakened the troops in his center, exactly as Hannibal had done. Then he combined this with a hidden detachment of cavalry, uh, which Hannibal had way behind his army and Simeon has hiding behind some hills. So, weak center of the army, strong flanks, hidden cavalry. Now the Byzantines, on the other hand, had a pretty basic formation, classic Byzantine uh, formation, uh, not super strong in either flanks or in the center, just a basic formation. And their plan, they were a little stronger to the right, was to outflank the Bulgarians to the right and prevent them from escaping towards the Balkan Mountains. Because again, remember, the Byzantines are ready to win. They feel confident. Their plan is not to just defeat the Bulgarians, but to cut off their retreat so they can annihilate this entire army. The Byzantines, as they've always been, are always ready to destroy Bulgaria. They're just always ready to have this sort of uh, annoying neighbor of theirs gone for good. And so, as so many times before, they enter this battle ready for it to be the final, final, final battle so they can end the silliness with these uh, sort of newly converted Christians who think that they can become emperors as well.
So as the battle begins, things seem to be going according to plan for the Bulgarians. After some very intense fighting, the Bulgarian center begins to give. They slowly start pulling back, and by doing that, they're drawing the larger Byzantine force inward. But this strategy does have its dangers and its downsides. It's a dangerous strategy because as the Bulgarian force in the center faced a fierce Byzantine cavalry charge, the discipline of these units begins to break, and some of those Bulgarian troops in the center start to actually retreat. So in this moment, Simeon's strategy is perched on a knife's edge between total victory and complete disaster. And so, in this moment, Simeon knows that he has to strike. He has to bring his cavalry to bear, and he needs to take charge of the situation personally. So, despite the, Byzantine, the Byzantines' high morale and their feeling that they're just about to win this battle, Simeon and his cavalry sweep down turn around and slam into the rear of the Byzantines. Suddenly, panic sweeps through the army as the soldiers realize, suddenly, that they've gone from being on the cusp of victory to being surrounded. They have nowhere to run. They're stuck between Bulgarian steel, Bulgarian steel, Bulgarian steel, and the Black Sea. The nature of the battle changed so abruptly as the Byzantine forces suddenly began to lose their discipline and their orderly advance disintegrated into a disorganized slaughter. A Byzantine chronicler, Theophanes Continuatus, or the continuers of Theophanes, you remember we quoted him earlier, we don't know the specific names of these chroniclers, but the people who sort of kept on with his work, said of the battle, quote, because the judgments of God are unfathomable and inscrutable, the Romans were completely routed. Their headlong flight was punctuated by fearful cries as some men were trampled by comrades and others were killed by the enemy. There was such a letting of blood as had not happened for very many years. End quote. The general, Leo Phocas, had himself just barely managed to escape to Mesumbria and board a ship before the Bulgarians took that city as well. Also, a huge number of Byzantine officers and commanders weren't as lucky. They lost their lives. And by the end of the day, tens of thousands of Byzantine corpses littered the field, which had been littered so many times before. Byzantine chronicler Leo the Deacon wrote 75 years later that the bones bleached by the harsh sun still stood in great piles everywhere. Dr. Matthew Milner at McGill University in Canada calls it the greatest defeat in Byzantine history and the greatest victory for the Bulgarians. Now, I think both of these are debatable, but whatever your kind of perspective on this, it, you can't deny that this was an enormously important battle. It's unfortunate we really don't know a lot of details. What I gave you is really about all you can find about it. But despite some of the lack of details we have, this was one of those catastrophic defeats, one of those haunting defeats. Again, one of these defeats that, you know, almost a hundred years later, Byzantine chroniclers are going to write about it in the same way that the Romans were haunted by Lake Trasimene, the way those ghosts just hung in their memories and they thought about those tens of thousands of soldiers lost. But at the very least, Leo Phocas had escaped. And with the help of Zoe, he managed to throw together another army to quickly confront Simeon because... Simeon was ready to take advantage of this moment. He immediately turned his army south and started marching back 
to Constantinople, bent on revenge. This thrown-together army met the Bulgarians at Katastrati, just outside the walls of Constantinople. Now this time, the Bulgarians attacked at night, a very rare occurrence in pre-20th century warfare. And again, they completely and utterly routed the Byzantines. Now, it was time to truly panic. Nothing stood between the twice-victorious Simeon and Constantinople. But Simeon knew several things. First, it was very late in the year. Winter was coming, and the walls of Constantinople are nothing you can attack without very extensive preparation. So, Simeon turned around. He turned to the rebellious Serbs, and in a lightning campaign, remember, he had only just finished up with the Byzantines in late August, and it was now sort of winter and uh, into spring, he managed to swing back and fight the Serbs before they managed to sort of get their act together and attack Bulgaria as they had told the Byzantines they would do. He managed to throw the prince, or Kinyaz, Peter into prison, where he would soon die, and he replaced him with a loyal man named Pavel Branovich. Not too bad for just a few months' work. Then once winter was over, Simeon spent the spring of 918 raiding deep into Greece yet again, throwing the entire Byzantine Empire into yet another panic. But if Simeon had been intending to force Zoe to allow his daughter to marry the young emperor through these tactics, he undoubtedly failed. Because instead, the fear he caused in Constantinople allowed Admiral Romanos Lecapanos, remember, I told you to remember his name, to himself take power. Now, he quickly exiled Zoe to a monastery, a nunnery, yet again. Now, Zoe was never popular. Most of the women who sort of took power in Byzantium were very unpopular, with a few exceptions. So, he took power, sends Zoe to a nunnery, and has his daughter marry Constantine VII. In essence, he stole Simeon's idea, and quickly rose himself to the status of co-emperor in 920 again, just as Simeon was planning to do. Now, in this moment, Simeon could have sued for peace. He certainly would have gotten excellent terms, but he couldn't bring himself to do it. He had tasted great victories and had little to show for him, and he refused to accept that. And in addition, we can only imagine the humiliation and the anger to have this brilliant plan, to have it all succeed, to have a situation where Simeon could have become the father in law of the emperor of the Byzantines, and have it all taken away, and not just taken away, but have the same thing be done by another man? Simeon must have been just furious about this. In fact, the old patriarch Nicholas, uh, he was still, again, a sort of a friend of Simeon's. Remember, he had been kicked out by uh, Zoe. He was still corresponding with Simeon. He was still writing letters to him, and was begging Simeon to please stop, to end the war. Because you'll remember by now, the Bulgarians are Christians, just as the Byzantines are. They're Orthodox Christians. So these wars are always a little bit awkward. And as we'll see, the Byzantine emperors just love throwing that in the Bulgarians' face. They love talking down to the Bulgarians and, and telling Simeon what a bad Christian he is for shedding Christian blood and how impious his actions are. So this, this patriarch is trying to use uh, Simeon's very serious religious convictions to convince him to just stop this war. And the new co-emperor, Romanos, he even offers the hand of one of his own daughters to one of Simeon's sons. But Simeon is essentially having none of it. He's done. 
or done uh, making these treaties. He, he doesn't trust the Byzantines. He doesn't trust Romanus. And so he spends the next several years ravaging the empire's Balkan territories as no Khan or Tsar had ever done before. Of course, the Bulgarians had raided Byzant the Byzantine lands many times, but really, for years, Simeon is going everywhere. There's a nice map uh, on the website. You can see these long lines going all throughout the Byzantine territories. So from 920 to 922, for these two years, Simeon sort of squeezes Constantinople like a ripe fruit. He even manages to cross into Anatolia and lay siege to the city of Lampascus. So he's really going everywhere. He's even crossing into Asia. As far as I know, the very first Bulgarian army to ever cross into Asia. Well, besides Central Asia, the long story. You remember that from the early episodes. So in the meantime, the Byzantines, of course, they're not sitting idly by. It's not like they're doing nothing. They tried to send a new candidate for the, uh, the sort of kniazship, the, uh, the princeship of Serbia. They, they send this new candidate that way. His name is Zaharia. So they throw him, send him over to Serbia to overthrow Pavel, the kind of loyal Bulgarian uh, vassal. But unfortunately, Zaharia is captured by Simeon. So the Byzantines change tactics. Instead, they decide to give Pavel so much gold that he eventually decides that he will indeed switch sides. So at that moment, in 921, Simeon is laying siege to Adrianople yet again. And oddly enough, Simeon actually sent a small army with Zaharia, that same guy of all people, at its head, promising him the Serbian throne if he could defeat Pavel. So to review here, Simeon overthrows uh, Peter and installs Pavel. Then the Byzantines try to send Zaharia to be the new prince of Serbia. Zaharia is captured by Simeon. Pavel, who was loyal to Simeon, changes his mind because of Byzantine gold, and now Simeon is trying to put Zaharia, the Byzantine candidate, on the throne as a now loyal Bulgarian supporter. It's a very, very strange situation. But, so essentially, uh, this small army sent by Simeon actually succeeds. It manages to overthrow Pavel and put Zaharia on the throne. But Zaharia is not the most loyal subject, not the most loyal vassal. And within a short time, he decides to convince the Slavic tribes and the borderlands of Bulgaria to rebel against Simeon. He turns against Simeon pretty quickly. So at this moment, Simeon is again pretty distracted. He's trying to find a way to capture Constantinople once and for all. He's really just not focused on Serbia. This is just sort of a thorn in his side far away to the west. So he sends a small force to Serbia, 923, to take care of anything, but this time they're defeated. But still, Simeon refuses to be distracted. The Serbs aren't a sort of existential threat. Because in this moment, he has much bigger fish to fry. He is in negotiations with the Fatimid Caliphate, the uh, sort of main Islamic state extending through the Middle East and North Africa in this moment. He's in negotiations with them to acquire a navy. Because he knows that a navy will do will be enormously sort of helpful in taking Constantinople. It's maybe even necessary to take Constantinople. So he's negotiating with the enemies of the Byzantines to get himself a navy. And the Fatimids agree. But their envoys, with the reply saying, yes, we will give you a navy, they're intercepted by the Byzantines, who then decide to give the Fatimids an immense amount of gold in exchange for them to change their minds. So knowing this meant his plan to take the Byzantine capital was ruined, Simeon decided to march on the city with another goal in mind. 
force a peace to allow him to deal with the Serbs. So in this case, Simeon actually is willing to settle. He's willing to kind of change his plans when necessary. He's not going to try to mount a full-scale attack on Constantinople. He knows it's foolish. So he's somewhat determined, he's somewhat reluctant to make peace, but in the right circumstances, he will change his plans. He will make peace. So in September of 923, Simeon's army pillages its way down to the walls of Constantinople yet again. There, he demanded an audience with Romanus. So the emperors met. Simeon acted as if he was already victorious. But despite his bluster, despite his sort of arrogance, he does manage to acquire a truce. A truce which gives him more Byzantine gold and several Black Sea ports. Now, it's time to turn to the Serbs. So, in 924, Simeon sent out against Serbia with another huge army. But this time, he doesn't intend to simply install a new Serbian ruler. He is very much done playing that game. He doesn't trust any of these Serbian princes. Though, he does actually bring a man along. He's got a candidate, a guy named Chaslav. Now, Chaslav should supposedly be installed as a new ruler of Serbia, but in fact, it's all a bit of a trick. So, after the Bulgarians ravage Serbia and, for and force Zaharia to flee to Croatia, all the nobles of that country are asked to pay homage to their new ruler, this Chaslav. So, they all come, they are all taken prisoner, sent to Preslav, and beheaded. Simeon was done having unreliable Serbs as vassals. So, Serbia was now annexed outright. No more having these vassals. No, Serbia is going to become an integral part of the Bulgarian Empire. Now, this means a large swath of new territory, as well as a dangerous new border. Bulgaria now borders both its ally Michael, again, in roughly in kind of modern Montenegro, and Croatia, under its greatest ruler, Tomislav the Great. Tomislav was indeed a very mighty ruler, and one who enjoyed excellent relations with the Byzantines. Now, it was around this time that the Byzantine patriarch Nicholas, uh, with whom Simeon had corresponded extensively for the past few years, as we mentioned, well, he finally died. Simeon took this as an opportunity to declare that the head of the Bulgarian church would now be patriarch as well. That may now sound, not sound like much to us, but in a world where titles meant a great deal, this was yet another move with overt imperial ambitions. Now, there's an extensive debate, uh, kind of looking at uh, this issue of titles, as to whether or not Simeon did refer to himself as Emperor of the Romans or Emperor of the Romans and the Bulgarians. Now, I mentioned earlier that uh, Thomas Fine believes that he was probably just called Emperor of the Bulgarians. But uh, you can also read uh, this John von Antwerp book on the early modern Balkans. It's got a lot of details in this. But what's interesting, we do know he was called Tsar by his people, a shortened form of Caesar, title given to him by the Byzantines. But still, kind of Simeon seems a little bit kind of uh, obsessed with these titles. Uh, and he, he, he really cares a lot about this. Again, this is an era where titles mean a great deal. And he's still searching for the way, a way in which he can become true kind of emperor of the Romans. Because remember that Simeon was raised in Constantinople. He got his education there. He was trained in this Byzantine tradition, which believed that there could only truly be one emperor, that the emperor was connected to God, and you could only have the one. So he had these titles really in his mind. Anyway, so getting back to this new border. Now, Croatia 
was a Byzantine ally. I mentioned Tomislav the Great had excellent uh, relations with the Byzantines. And in this moment, uh, I mentioned Zaharia fled to Croatia. So uh, Croatia is actually harboring many, many Serbs who fled that territory and who were sort of anti-Bulgarian. So this was a little bit concerning. This is a very powerful state. This is a Byzantine ally and is full of vengeful Serbs. So this really couldn't be tolerated by Simeon. He wouldn't allow this in his rear if he was going to continue attacking the Byzantines. So in 926, a war began as a, another large Bulgarian army under the command of a noble ruler named Alogo, Alogobotur, I think I'm pronouncing that right, it's a bit of a strange name, invaded Croatia. Now the war ends within a year with a Bulgarian defeat at the Battle of the Bosnian Highlands. Now, some sources claim that the entire Bulgarian force was lost, uh, but I think Simeon's actions immediately afterwards show that this was very unlikely. Uh, essentially, it's very unlikely that Simeon would have attempted another invasion of Byzantium immediately after losing such a large army. Uh, so, whatever the case, uh, you know, probably not, it wasn't probably the case that the entire Bulgarian force was lost, but it was definitely a defeat and a serious one. So, at this moment, the Bulgarians lose the war, and the Pope, because the Pope had pretty good relations with the Bulgarians and the Croatia, he uh, sort of secured a peace between them. But the peace was essentially another status quo antebellum. It just not very much changed, no territory really changed hands, and things went back to the way they were. But this defeat, I think uh, probably the first defeat of Simeon's reign, had really not taken away his thirst for war. He was just, he was not done. He couldn't allow himself to finish. We see this so often that when these sort of great men of history, when they start to get a taste of victory, they have such a hard time stopping. They just can't seem to stop. So in 927, he was preparing for another siege of Constantinople. At this point, Simeon decided that whether or not he had a fleet, he was going to take that city. He also seemed to be sort of laser-like focused uh, on the destruction of Romanus, this man he uh, sort of saw as his rival, and the man who stole his plan and stole his role in the Byzantine court. But that drive, that uh, you know, laser-like focus, that, that drive he had could only bring him so far, because he died of heart failure in Preslav that very year, 927. Now, just like Krum, he died just as he was preparing for a final attack on that queen of cities. When he was 63 years old, he had been Tsar for 34 years. 34 years full of war, but also full of incredible cultural achievements, which I'll talk about a little bit later. As Runciman puts it, quote, It was as though the light had gone out and Bulgaria was left fumbling in the dark. End quote. Simeon had left four sons by two wives. But he ultimately chose the oldest of his sons from his second marriage, Peter, to succeed him. But Peter was only about 15 years old at the time, so the boy's maternal uncle, George Sosvulu, uh, would act as regent. Now, I imagine the Bulgarians must have been somewhat fearful of their future. Now, they just won a lot of wars, lost one, but really had great successes. But they knew from the recent events in Constantinople just how dangerous a boy on the throne could be. But they must have also had hopes for peace, because child emperors rarely make war, and Bulgaria had seen an incredible amount of war in those 34 years. But still, looking back on Simeon, it's important to remember that Bulgaria during his reign also saw 
again, as I just mentioned, an incredible amount of cultural development. All his life, Simeon remained a scholar, a patron of the arts. He fostered a much greater emphasis on culture in the Bulgarian court than had ever been seen before. And he did indeed build on his father's legacy. So it is often said that Bulgarian art and literature reached a peak during the reign of Simeon. Now this is rather remarkable considering, again, the amount of war which was going on. And most states and empires don't experience periods of high culture at the same time as they experience periods of intense war. It's a bit of a strange confluence of events, uh, but this is how Bulgaria was in the early 10th century. All right, so that's about all we have time for today. It's going to be a very long episode. So next time, we're going to finish, start with a little bit more kind of recap, looking in the, the long durée of uh, Simeon's reign. And we're going to try to take in what his life meant to Bulgaria. Then we're going to look at his son Peter and the slow decades of decline as the first Bulgarian empire, having just reached its peak, begins to move towards its death. This podcast is produced by Martin Christoph. The composer of our theme music is Teddy Raven, and the story is written by me, Eric Halsey. Help us spread the word by liking us on Facebook, writing us a review on iTunes, whatever you can do. But seriously, liking us on Facebook so you can keep track of the latest developments and see interesting articles and images is a great idea. At the same time, we also have a new email list. So if you want to go to bghistorypodcast.com, you can sign up for that email list and you're going to get some cool little extras. We're working on those right now. We've got a couple of ideas, but some very interesting things connected with Bulgarian history will be awaiting you in your email box sometime soon. So please go sign up for the email list. Go write us a review. Do whatever you can. We really appreciate it. So, uh, also for this map, or for this episode, we've got a couple maps, a couple interesting images, so also be sure to go to the website and check that out. Finally, as always, consider making a donation with the PayPal button on the website. It always makes a big difference for us, we love it when you do it, and thanks to everyone who's donated in the past. So, until next time, uspech, or in English, good luck.